Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, part two of Apostolic Coup d'Etat, or how the Quorum of Twelve Apostles, in a breathtaking power grab, assumed absolute and complete control of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. In the last episode, we talked about how, when Joseph Smith was murdered in June of 1844, the problem was not that there was nobody who could lay claim to being the next leader of the church. The problem was that there was an overabundance of people and groups who could feasibly lay claim to being the next leader of the church. We talked about how Brigham Young, on behalf of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, was able to convince a majority of the Latter-day Saints to accept the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles as the leaders of the church in place of Joseph Smith and the First Presidency. We also talked about how three and a half years later at Winter's Quarters, Brigham Young, over substantial pushback from five of the other apostles, managed to win acceptance for his proposal to reorganize the First Presidency with himself as President and Apostles Heber C. Kimball and Willard Richards as his counselors. We also talked about how miracles appear to have been created and then retroactively inserted into the historical narrative to show that Brigham Young had been transfigured into Joseph Smith at the August 8, 1844 meeting in which he spoke to the saints and argued that the apostles should lead the church. We also talked about the retroactive miracle at Winter's Quarters on December 5, 1847, at the meeting with the apostles, actually only eight of the twelve apostles were present for this meeting, when Brigham Young said that there was an earthquake, and Orson Hyde amplified on that, saying not only was there an earthquake, but also the voice of God was heard by the apostles, saying it was time for Brigham Young to step forward and become president of the church. These stories, however, surface many, many years after the events they alleged to portray. And in fact, in both instances, people who were present at the time and made contemporaneous records mention nothing unusual or miraculous occurring. So both of these stories appear to be late fabrications that were inserted into the historical record in order to buttress the claims of leadership. The purpose of the stories is to show that God sanctions, God approves, God commands these changes in leadership. God approved of Brigham Young and the apostles leading the church. That's why Brigham Young was transfigured into Joseph Smith. Later on, God ordered by his own voice from heaven that Brigham Young should become president of the church and reorganize the first presidency. The purpose of these miracle stories is to confirm that this is the way God wanted things to happen. And it's also interesting to note that the only reason for creating miracle stories and applying them backward in history at these critical junctures of leadership transition is because the people who created them felt their claims needed buttressing. In other words, they felt their claims were not strong enough to stand on their own and therefore needed an extra miracle in order to solidify their case. We delved a bit into section 107 given in 1835, which describes the different quorums of leadership in the church, the quorum of the First Presidency, the quorum of the Twelve Apostles, which is said to be equal in power and authority to the First Presidency, 
we talked about the Quorum of Seventy, which is described in the Revelation as being equal in power and authority to the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. We talked about the fact that this Revelation does not say two things that modern-day Latter-day Saints like to ascribe to it. The first thing it does not say is that any quorum has the power to reconstitute a higher quorum. Specifically, it does not say that the Quorum of the Twelve has the power to reconstitute the First Presidency. The second thing this revelation does not say is that one quorum is above another in power and authority. That's the way it's come to be interpreted nowadays, and we quoted from Joseph F. Smith in 1906 to that effect in the last episode. Instead of a strict hierarchy of at the top, first presidency, next Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, next Quorum of the Seventy, as we have it today, section 107 is extremely clear and repetitive on the point that each of these quorums are equal in power and authority one to the other. Going on with a little bit more study in the Doctrine and Covenants, there is only one section in the Doctrine and Covenants that appears to contemplate the appointment of a successor to Joseph Smith and the way in which that would be done. That is section 43 of the Doctrine and Covenants, which says in verses 2 through 4, For behold, verily, verily, I say unto you that ye have received a commandment for a law unto my church, through him, that's Joseph Smith, through him whom I have appointed unto you to receive commandments and revelations from my hand. And this ye shall know assuredly, that there is none other appointed unto you to receive commandments and revelations until he be taken, if he abide in me. Verse 4 is the critical verse here. But verily, verily, I say unto you, that none else shall be appointed unto this gift, except it be through him. For if it be taken from him, he shall not have power except to appoint another in his stead. Unquote. So here is the reference in the Doctrine and Covenants and the published revelations of the church to how a successor to Joseph Smith will arise, and that is through direct appointment, that is the word used here, appointed, direct appointment by Joseph Smith, which would presumably be prior to his death. He would have to appoint somebody. And what we're going to see as we touch on this part of the history of the church is that there were a number of people coming forward who claimed to have appointments by Joseph Smith. And they even use that word, appointments, by Joseph Smith to be the next president. For example, Brigham Young himself in this August 8, 1844 meeting expressed his belief that if Hiram Smith had lived and not died at the same time as Joseph Smith, that Hiram Smith would have been the next leader of the church. In other words, he had the idea that Hiram Smith had this appointment. Here's the quote. If Hiram had lived, he would not have stood between Joseph and the twelve but he would have stood for Joseph. Did Joseph ordain any man to take his place? He did. Who was it? It was Hiram. But Hiram fell a martyr 
before Joseph did. So here's this expression by Brigham Young, that he knew of this idea, that a person had to be appointed by Joseph Smith in order to be the next president. Not only does this quote show Brigham Young understood this principle, it also indicates that Brigham Young understood that the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles did not have this specific appointment. Brigham Young himself did not have this specific appointment. There was no basis that Brigham Young could claim, based upon Section 43, that he or the Quorum of Twelve Apostles should become the leaders of the church. He argued it on different grounds and ultimately won the day with the majority of the Latter-day Saints. But to give you an idea, there was another fellow named William Strang, whom you may have heard of, and he came forward with a letter that he claimed was mailed to him prior to Joseph Smith's death, written by Joseph Smith, in which Joseph Smith appointed William Strang to become the next president of the church when Joseph Smith died. And it was generally understood, even by Brigham Young, that Joseph Smith's son, Joseph Smith III, was appointed by Joseph Smith to become the next president of the church. Joseph Smith III was very young when Joseph Smith died, and Brigham Young held open the idea that the apostles would lead the church until Joseph Smith III was old enough to become its rightful president. Joseph Smith III, however, had no intention of joining with the church in Utah. He was a member of the church to which his mother belonged. That would be Emma Smith. That would be Joseph Smith's wife, or more specifically, Joseph Smith's first wife. And ultimately, Joseph Smith III became president of the Reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, which ended up putting him out of contention for being president as far as Brigham Young was concerned. And not only did Hiram Smith and Joseph Smith III have appointment claims, along with William Strang, Samuel Smith, Joseph Smith's brother, appears in Nauvoo in July, a couple of weeks after Joseph Smith is murdered, and he claims that Joseph Smith appointed him to be the president of the church in case Joseph and Hiram were killed at the same time. We'll talk more about Samuel Smith later because he came to a tragic and somewhat suspicious end. One more example of Joseph Smith acting on Section 43's instructions is the ordination of David Whitmer on July 7, 1834. So that's pretty early on. But David Whitmer left the church a few years later. He was no longer a member of the church in 1844 when Joseph Smith died. But on July 7, 1834, Joseph Smith ordained David Whitmer, quote, to be a leader or a prophet to the church, which ordination was on condition that he, Joseph Smith, did not live to God himself, unquote. So the idea there being that if Joseph Smith fell away, David Whitmer now by this ordination would become the leader or prophet of the church. I mention all these examples to show that this was a commonly understood idea in the early church in Joseph Smith's time, that for a person to become the leader of the church, they had to be appointed to that office by Joseph Smith. And as I've indicated, there were a number of people who came forward to claim that appointment upon Joseph Smith's death. It was a little like in the 1970s when Howard Hughes died, and people started coming out of the woodwork claiming to have wills written by him that gave them 
all of Howard Hughes' money. The same sort of thing happened in Nauvoo shortly after Joseph Smith's death. Now let's go back to talk about how Brigham Young solidified the position of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles as the leaders of the church. First, under this heading, we're going to talk about the office of the presiding patriarch, the church patriarch. Now, Joseph Smith's father, Joseph Smith Sr., was the first church patriarch. After Joseph Smith Sr. passed away, the office went to Hiram Smith, Joseph Smith's brother. This is an office that no longer exists in the LDS Church. And that's interesting to me because I was baptized in 1978, and we're all perhaps familiar with the centerfold and the general conference issues of the enzyme. And by centerfold, I mean the middle section that opens up, and there's all the different pictures of all the different general authorities. They have the first presidency pictures at the top and the quorum of the twelve next, and all the hierarchy is spelled out with names and little photographs of all the different people who occupy those positions. Well, way back when I joined the church in 1978, when the church enzyme came out, there was a picture in that centerfold that no longer exists, and that was the picture of the church patriarch. Yes, the church patriarch appeared on the church centerfold. His name was Eldred G. Smith, and he had his own picture up there, though I can't quite recall at this point where he fell on this chart. I can guarantee you, however, his picture was not above the first presidency. And that might have been a surprise to Joseph Smith, because Joseph Smith clearly thought, at least as of the time of his death, that the patriarch was the highest office in the church. Let's look at Doctrine and Covenants, section 124. Section 124 was given January 19th, 1841. So that's about three and a half years before Joseph Smith dies. And here we have, starting in verse 91, the Lord talking about Hiram Smith being appointed to the office of patriarch. Verse 91, And again, verily I say unto you, let my servant William, that's William Law, be appointed, ordained, and anointed as counselor unto my servant Joseph in the room of my servant Hiram, that my servant Hiram may take the office of priesthood and patriarch. Now, that's an interesting expression. The office of priesthood and patriarch, which was appointed unto him by his father, that's Joseph Smith Sr., by blessing and also by right. This was a hereditary office. Nobody got to ordain anybody to be the patriarch, that was theirs by blessing and also by right, the blessing being from the patriarch before you, which would be your father if you were the patriarch. It goes on in verse 92 to talk about this office, that from henceforth he shall hold the keys of the patriarchal blessings upon the heads of all my people. Now, today when we think of patriarchal blessings, we think of a nice older man usually who we make an appointment with, we fast for 24 hours before we go, we have a once-in-a-lifetime generally appointment to get a patriarchal blessing. He lays his hands upon our head, he pronounces some very nice things about us, tells us how wonderful we were in the pre-mortal existence, admonishes us to obey the commandments and follow the prophet, and then promises us eternal blessings and rewards based upon our obedience to the commandments. So based upon what state patriarchs do today, it's possible to get 
a wrong idea about what the church patriarch used to do in Joseph Smith's day. Not only did the church patriarch give patriarchal blessings upon the heads of all my people, going to verse 93, that whosoever he blesses shall be blessed, and whosoever he curses shall be cursed, that whatsoever he shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever he shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, that is the sealing power. This is why the church patriarch was a big freaking deal in Joseph Smith's day. It was the church patriarch who had the power to seal people up to eternal life. But we will see, of course, that over time, that power was taken over by the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles as well, who exercise it today. There is no revelation giving them that power, to my knowledge. They simply took it over once they got rid of the church patriarch. Verse 94 goes on about Hiram as the patriarch, and from this time forth, I appoint unto him that he may be, that's Hiram, a prophet and a seer and a revelator unto my church, as well as my servant Joseph. Now there are only two individuals and two positions in the entire Doctrine and Covenants that are referred to by the title Prophet, Seer, and Revelator. One of them is Joseph Smith. The other one is Hiram Smith. Now, skipping to verse 123 in section 124, the Lord now introduces the different offices and the different positions in the leadership of his church. Quoting from section 124, First, I give unto you... Now, who's going to come there? Who's going to come first in this list that the Lord is giving of his priesthood offices in the church? Well, naturally, we would think Joseph Smith is president of the church, possibly the first presidency, but it's got to be somebody at the very top because the Lord is saying, first I give unto you. The surprise is that the answer is not Joseph Smith and it's not the first presidency. Section 124, verse 124, an easy reference to remember, says this, First I give unto you Hiram Smith to be a patriarch unto you, to hold the sealing blessings of my church, even the Holy Spirit of promise. See, I wasn't kidding when I said earlier that the patriarch had the sealing keys. The Holy Spirit of promise, the power to seal people up to eternal life, to have their calling and election made sure was the power of the patriarch. That's why he comes first in the list. Once again from the Revelation. First I give unto you Hiram Smith to be a patriarch unto you, to hold the sealing blessings of my church, even the Holy Spirit of promise, whereby ye are sealed up unto the day of redemption, that ye may not fall, notwithstanding the hour of temptation that may come upon you. I'm going to stop reading section 124 at this point, and I want to make another note. It appears from this revelation that the office of church patriarch is the highest in the church because it comes first and the Lord says it's first in the revelation. But I want to add additional evidence to that. On May 27, 1843, Joseph Smith said, quote, The patriarchal office is the highest office in the church. And Father Smith conferred this office on Hiram Smith on his deathbed, 
unquote. The context of this quote by Joseph Smith saying the patriarchal office is the highest office in the church arose because Joseph Smith and some of the other brethren were sitting in judgment on a wayward Mormon whose last name was Winchester. We don't hear about him much in the church. But Winchester was having problems with the church. He was making certain claims. And one of the claims he made was that there was a conflict between the patriarch and the Quorum of the Twelve. Joseph Smith is saying, no, there's no conflict. The patriarchal office is the highest office in the church. It's over the Twelve. No conflict. This little-known episode with Winchester is found in the History of the Church, Volume 5, page 411. But the History of the Church omits the statement that Joseph Smith made about Hiram's patriarchal office being the highest in the church. That statement is found in the minutes of the meeting that Joseph Smith had with Hiram Smith, James Adams, Newell K. Whitney, and others in Nauvoo on May 27, 1843, in the LDS archives. This is found in D. Michael Quinn's The Mormon Hierarchy, Origins of Power, page 306, footnote 70. It is in the minutes of the meeting. But when those minutes got reproduced and published in the history of the church, that line was taken out. Once again, the history of the church is a multi-volume production that was created after Joseph Smith's death, after the apostles took over leadership, after Brigham Young became president, and even though it was based upon the original minutes of certain meetings, the apostles, who had to give approval for the history of the church to be published, made sure that there was nothing in the history of the church that could compromise their claims to leadership. This is an example. Joseph Smith said the patriarchal office is the highest office in the church. Sorry, that's not going to make it into the history of the church. We're going to delete that. We'll still have the story about Winchester, only it's going to be missing this critical passage. So now I'd like to go back to something I mentioned at the beginning of the last episode, which was the anointing of the different offices and quorums in the church in the Kirtland Temple January 21st, 1836. I mentioned in the last episode that the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles was not first, was not second, was not third, fourth, or fifth. The Quorum of the Twelve Apostles was actually sixth in the list. The important thing for purposes of this subject is that number one leading the list was presiding patriarch Joseph Smith Senior, he was anointed first in the Kirtland Temple. After that, the first presidency. And then down, number six, the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. For those of you who want to know the rest, I'll say them quickly. Number three were the regional bishops of Kirtland and Zion, or Missouri, with their counselors. Number four was the stake president in Kirtland, where the temple was then located. Number five was the stake president in Zion, Missouri. Six was the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, as I said. Number seven was the Presidency of the Seventy. And number eight was the President of the High Priest's Quorum. So you can see where the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles ranked when the anointing of officers occurred, 21st January, 1836, in the Kirtland Temple. Number one, Presiding Patriarch. Number six, Quorum of the Twelve. But after Joseph Smith died and Hiram died along with him, 
There was some controversy over who would be the next patriarch. I don't have time to go into it now, but there is an excellent book on the subject. That book is called Lost Legacy, the Mormon Office of Presiding Patriarch. If you're interested in the subject, you can get that book and read through it. We're just going to touch on a couple of points. The first point is that immediately after Hiram Smith died, the church patriarch was no longer the highest office in the church, as you can imagine. Brigham Young did not have anybody above the apostles. The apostles were top dog in the new Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. But the office of church patriarch was allowed to continue. And over time and over decades, and after the church got into Utah, more and more responsibility and authority and power was taken away from the office of the church patriarch until eventually... He was just a figurehead who had his picture printed with the other officers of the church in the General Conference enzymes. The church grew, and as part of the church growth, patriarchs were called in every stake to administer the patriarchal blessings. The apostles at some point took away from the patriarch the power to seal up unto eternal life, the power to make one's calling and election sure. And once that power was taken away, the church patriarch largely became a figurehead. Ultimately, Eldred G. Smith, the last patriarch of the church, was put on emeritus status in 1979. What that means is he was put out to pasture. That happened in the October General Conference 1979 on October 4th. Elder G. Smith was put on emeritus status. Up to that point, he had been sustained as prophet, seer, and revelator as he is denominated in Doctrine and Covenants section 124. However, after he was put on emeritus status, he was no longer called that. And most importantly, no new church patriarch was called, which would have been his eldest faithful male child. But because no new church patriarch was called to take his place, and Elder G. Smith was simply put on emeritus status, he continued to live for many more years until he passed away on April 4, 2013. Once he passed away, the office of church patriarch, the office that Joseph Smith called the highest office in the church, went out of existence. And with the removal of the church patriarch from the church hierarchy, the apostles' coup d'etat was complete. So in summary, the Quorum of the Twelve have now taken over the first presidency and ultimately eliminated the highest office in the church, that of stake patriarch. Let me try to express this in an analogy. Most of us are familiar with how the United States government is constructed. There are three bodies, the legislative, the executive, and the judiciary. Suppose with me that the president and the vice president were assassinated at the same time. And further suppose with me that the Constitution makes no provision for who should become president in that eventuality. But the president and vice president are gone in one blow. Now, in my analogy, the legislature picks a new president and a new vice president, and the legislature picks them out of the senators. So now two senators become the president and the vice president. In that way, the legislative branch has taken over the executive branch. But then, they want to take care of the Supreme Court, too. Well, somebody gets a good idea. We don't have to fire all nine of the justices on the Supreme Court. All we have to do is fail to appoint new ones 
when the old ones die out. And eventually, all nine of the Supreme Court justices die, and there's no more Supreme Court. This is similar to what the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles did in taking control over the LDS Church. In my analogy, let me ask a couple of questions. What allegiance would an American citizen have to the federal government if such a usurpation of power occurred? Here's the legislative branch. They've taken over the executive branch. They've appointed of their own number a president and a vice president, so they've got control of that. Now they've done away with the judicial branch by letting the Supreme Court die out. The legislative branch has assumed complete control of the entire government, of the executive and the legislative. They have all the power. What allegiance would an American have to a federal government if such a usurpation of power occurred? And similarly, I've got to ask the question, what allegiance does a Mormon have to a church government if such a usurpation of power occurred? That is a question that every Mormon must answer for him or herself. So that's how Brigham Young and the Apostles took control of the leadership of the LDS Church. But that's not the end of it. Brigham Young also took control over the entire church. He took control over the stakes of Zion. And that is a place where the Apostles never had authority until Brigham Young seized it in contravention and contradiction to the revelations that God gave to Joseph Smith. We touched on this earlier. We'll go more in-depth on it here in a second. But now I've got to use another analogy. If we want to understand what the church was like in Joseph Smith's day, we have to get rid of our presuppositions about the way the church is now. It was not first presidency over the entire church at the top, Quorum of the Twelve Apostles over the entire church next, 70 over the entire church next. It wasn't this type of general authority hierarchy in Joseph Smith's day. Instead, let me use this analogy. I'm going to compare this to a county prosecutor's office. Now, in a county prosecutor's office, there are two divisions of prosecutors. Usually, when we think of it, we think of the criminal division of the prosecutor's office with the criminal deputies. There are deputy prosecutors in the criminal division. They prosecute cases. They get most of the news stories. That's why we tend to think of them first. But there is another equally important division in the county prosecutor's office, and that is called the civil division. They don't prosecute crimes. That's the other division. In the civil division, they have deputy prosecutors who represent the county against claims and lawsuits made by other people against the county. So that's why it's the civil division. The civil division is a completely separate division from the criminal division, but they're all part of the same prosecutor's office. And the elected prosecutor, the guy that gets voted into office, is the head of the office, and he is over both the criminal division and the civil division. So that's how a county prosecutor's office is set up. Now, going back to the church in Joseph Smith's day, there were two completely separate divisions of the church. There was one division where stakes of Zion were organized. Wherever there was a stake, there was a stake president, 
and a stake-high council that was part of the organization. In places where there was a stake-high council, the stake-high council had authority for governing what happened inside the stake. That's why they're there. That's what they do. Now, every place where there isn't a stake, that's the mission field. That's outside the stakes of Zion. And outside the stakes of Zion, that's where the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles and the Seventy have authority. That's where they go. That's where they go out and preach the gospel. That's why they're the traveling high council, because they travel. That's why the state councils are standing high councils, because they stay in one place in their stake and govern there. Now, going back to section 107, we talked about how it says the first presidency is a quorum, and the quorum of the Twelve Apostles is equal in power and authority to the first presidency, and the seventy is equal in power and authority to the quorum of the Twelve. But it goes on. When we hear about it in church, that's where the speaker stops. Like the talk from President Hinckley that I quoted in the last episode. He gave a general conference talk, But that's where he stops. He talks about the First Presidency. He talks about the Quorum of the Twelve. He talks about the Quorum of the Seventy, that they're all equal in power and authority. But he stops there. He doesn't go on any further in Section 107. And there's good reason for that. Because Section 107 goes on to say that not only do those three quorums have equal power and authority, but also the stake high councils are equal in power and authority to the Seventy, to the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, and also to the First Presidency. So you can understand why that doesn't get mentioned very often in church. Let's go to section 107, starting with verse 33, where once again the Twelve are referred to as a traveling presiding high council. The Twelve are a traveling presiding high council to officiate in the name of the Lord under the direction of the Presidency of the Church, agreeable to the institution of heaven, to build up the church and regulate all the affairs of the same in all nations, first unto the Gentiles and secondly unto the Jews. There's that missionary aspect of their calling. Next, the seventy are to act in the name of the Lord under the direction of the twelve or the traveling high council in building up the church and regulating all the affairs of the same in all nations, first unto the Gentiles and then to the Jews. It's the same calling as the twelve. The twelve being sent out, holding the keys to open the door by the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. See how this makes so much more sense? When you understand that the twelve are not over the entire church, but they're over the missionary effort outside the places where stakes of Zion have been organized. The twelve being sent out, holding the keys to open the door by the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and first unto the Gentiles, and then unto the Jews. Now we get to the money quote about the high councils. Verse 36, the standing high councils, those are the stake high councils, the standing high councils at the stakes of Zion form a quorum equal in authority in the affairs of the church in all their decisions to the quorum of the presidency or to the traveling high council. They are equal in authority to the first presidency 
and to the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. Then verse 37 says, The High Council in Zion, that's in Missouri, this is 1835, remember, when the Mormons were still in Missouri, the High Council in Zion form a quorum equal in authority in the affairs of the church and all their decisions to the councils of the Twelve at the stakes of Zion. Now, when it talks about the councils of the twelve at the stakes of Zion, that's talking about the additional stakes other than the stake that was formed in Zion. There's a high council in the stake of Zion, Missouri. There's also a high council in Kirtland at the time this is being written. And there are other high councils that are anticipated that will be created in the future and that indeed were created in the future in Nauvoo as the church expanded and more stakes were organized. What verse 37 says is, the high council in Zion form a quorum equal in authority to the affairs of the church in all their decisions to the councils of the twelve at the stakes of Zion. So in other words, the high council in Zion is equal in authority to the other high councils in the other stakes of Zion. Every place the church is organized into a stake has a high council. The high council is in charge of running the affairs in that stake. The only person over the high council is the first presidency. The quorum of the twelve is over here, outside the stakes, running the missionary work. Under them is the seventy. And the only person over the apostles is the first presidency, but that is solely and exclusively in the mission field, not in any stake where the church is organized. Verse 98 kind of sums it up after talking about all the other different officers in the church and how they are standing, quorums and standing, high councils. Verse 98 of section 107 states, Whereas other officers of the church who belong not unto the twelve, neither to the seventy, are not under the responsibility to travel among all nations, but are to travel as their circumstances shall allow, notwithstanding they may hold as high and responsible offices in the church. So it's only the twelve and the seventy who are under the responsibility to travel among all nations. The reason they're under that responsibility is because their responsibility is to preach the gospel and open the door to the proclamation of the gospel in all the nations. This 1835 revelation about the High Council having equal authority to the Quorum of the Twelve was reinforced when Joseph Smith told the High Council, after he organized them, quote, If he should now be taken away, that he had accomplished the great work which the Lord had laid before him, and that which he had desired of the Lord, unquote. Joseph Smith added, He now had done his duty in organizing the High Council through which counsel the will of the Lord might be known on all important occasions in the building up of Zion and establishing truth in the earth. It appears from this that the Central High Council may have had the succession right to Joseph Smith if he should now be taken away, as he put it in the quote. Not only do the revelations indicate strongly that the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles has jurisdiction in the mission field, whereas the stake high councils have jurisdiction in the stakes. At a meeting on May 2nd, 1835, Joseph Smith instructed the Twelve that they had, quote, no right to go into Zion or any of its stakes and there undertake to regulate the affairs thereof where there is a standing high 
Council. That's how clear it was. Let me read that again. Joseph Smith told the Twelve, 1835, May 2nd, that they had no right to go into Zion, that would be Missouri at the time, no right to go into Zion or any of its stakes, and there undertake to regulate the affairs thereof where there is a standing high council. Instead, their jurisdiction extended only to the areas outside Zion, the church's center place in Missouri, or any of its stakes. In another instance of the apostles monkeying with the history of the church, a meeting was held February 27, 1835, in which Joseph Smith proposed the following question. What importance is there attached to the calling of these twelve apostles, different from the other callings or officers of the church? This was a huge question at the time. There was already a high council of twelve individuals, which was very high up in the church. What was the difference between the calling of the twelve apostles and other callings or officers in the church? After this question was discussed by several present, Joseph Smith Jr. gave the following decision. They are the twelve apostles who are called to the office of the traveling high council, who are to preside over the churches of the saints among the Gentiles, where there is a presidency established. Now pay attention to that quote because that's where the history of the church changes it from the original minutes. Once again it says, who are to preside over the churches of the saints among the Gentiles, that's the apostles, where there is a presidency established. So it sounds from this quote in church history that the apostles are to preside over the church where there is a presidency established. In other words, where there is a stake presidency established, they are to preside. If that were correct, that would mean the apostles were over the stake presidencies because it says that they preside over the churches of the saints among the Gentiles where there is a presidency established. Now, the problem is, is that when you look at the actual Kirtland Council Minute Book, one word in this quote was changed. And instead of the church history version, where it says where there is a presidency established, it actually said where there is no presidency established. The minutes in the Kirtland Minute Book make it clear, just what I've been saying all along, is that the apostles have no authority to preside where there is a presidency established. In other words, where there is a stake presidency established. They have no authority in the stakes of Zion. But this was considered damning enough that when the history of the church was published, this language was changed, so it did not challenge the authority of the apostles over the stake presidents. And again, this language had to be changed by the apostles in order not to completely undercut the authority they had already assumed over the stakes of Zion. Interestingly, this incorrect quote from the minutes of the meeting is perpetuated in the Mormon wiki link on the subject of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. They use the language from the history of the church where there is a presidency established. We wouldn't want Mormon wiki to be undercutting the authority of the Twelve Apostles by accurately quoting the church documents. Now, the quotes we've been using from Joseph Smith regarding the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles having authority outside the stakes of Zion versus the stake high councils having authority inside the stakes of Zion have come from 1835. So it's important to note 
that as late as 1843, May 27th, 1843, that is a year before Joseph Smith died, Joseph Smith is quoted as making the same point. What he said was, quote, The high council was to try cases that belonged to the stake, and the twelve to regulate the churches and elders abroad in all the world, unquote. Now that last expression he says, in all the world, is the phrase that Joseph Smith used to talk about the fact that the apostles had authority outside the stakes of Zion. When he says in all the world, he means in all the world, outside the stakes of Zion, where there is no stake organized. Let me repeat that quote once again. The high council was to try cases that belonged to the stake, and the twelve to regulate the churches and elders abroad in all the world. Unquote. That is significant because in section 107 we frequently hear the verse cited regarding the apostles being special witnesses of Christ, and more specifically, special witnesses of the name of Christ. What we tend to focus on today is the fact that they are special witnesses, and does that mean that they have seen Jesus, or does it mean that they're simply special witnesses of the name of Jesus, as the verse states? But the verse in section 107 says, the twelve are to be special witnesses of the name of Jesus, in all the world. And I think that at the time it was written, the emphasis there was in all the world, equal to, if not more so, than emphasis on there being special witnesses of the name of Jesus, because it's followed up immediately by saying that the Quorum of the Seventy are also to be as special witnesses of the name of Jesus in all the world. Those expressions, in all the world, in their historical context and comparing it with other usages by Joseph Smith, means in all the world in places where there are not stakes organized. So when section 107 says the apostles are to be special witnesses of Jesus in all the world, it means their witness is to be limited to places where the stakes are not organized. They are missionaries in the mission field. That is their exclusive dominion. That is where they have authority. And that was repeated once again by Joseph Smith as late as one year before his death, May 27, 1843. The High Council was to try cases that belonged to the stake and the twelve to regulate the churches and elders abroad in all the world. That citation can be found in the History of the Church, Volume 5, page 410. The stake president of Nauvoo at the time was a man named William Marks. That's another name we don't hear very often in Sunday school class. William Marks was the president of the Nauvoo stake at the time of Joseph Smith's assassination, and as such, he had a major league claim to leadership of the church. But William Marks was not ambitious. He did not want to claim leadership of the church. So instead of making his own bid for leadership of the church, he backed Sidney Rigdon's claim to leadership of the church. Sidney Rigdon, as we talked about last episode, did not get very far in his bid to become leader, or in his words, guardian of the church. But that was not so much because he didn't have a good claim on it, being the sole remaining member of the First Presidency, but mainly because of his personality and his somewhat wishy-washy performance in the church for a number of years preceding that. So, Sidney Rigdon was excommunicated 
by Brigham Young on September 8th of 1844, mainly because Brigden did not back Brigham Young. We have to get used to this in Mormon history when we're talking about the real history at the time of the succession crisis. Brigham Young brooked no opposition. And after the apostles took over leadership of the church, anybody who was not on board with the apostles was going to have to be taken care of in one way or another. So Sidney Rigdon was excommunicated on September 8th, 1844. Within four weeks of Sidney Rigdon's excommunication, Brigham Young took a number of steps to solidify his power. And he did this by dismantling the other competing power structures. Brigham Young first eliminated the potential threat of the 70. Yes, I said of the 70. Isn't the 70 beneath the quorum of the 12 apostles? Well, yes, they are in today's church. And they were in some sense back then too. But remember, section 107 says what? That the quorum of the 70 is equal in power and authority to the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. So Brigham Young, seeing the Quorum of the Seventy as a threat, or at least a competitor, to the power and authority of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, took steps to dismantle them. How did he do that? Well, really, quite brilliantly, if you think about it. What he did was this. First off, we have to review the organization of the Quorum of the Seventy. It was organized the same then as it is today. There are seven presidents of the Quorum of the Seventy. Those seven presidents are not in addition to the 70. They are part of the number of 70. So there are actually seven presidents of the 70 who are members of the Quorum of the 70 themselves. And then there are beneath them in that quorum 63 other members of the 70. There's 63 plus the seven who are in leadership makes a total of 70 if I'm doing my math right. What Brigham Young did on September 29th was he took all the 70 out of the Quorum of the 70 except for the presidency of 7. So he took all 63 of the 70 out of the Quorum of the 70. What did he do with them? Well, he decided that he would create nine more subordinate quorums of the 70, subordinate to the original first quorum of the 70, because it was this first quorum of the 70 that was seen as having power equal in authority to the quorum of the 12 apostles. Well, what does Brigham Young do about that? He takes all of them away, except for their leadership, creates nine new subordinate quorums of the 70, and he takes those 63 previous members of the first quorum of the 70, and he makes them the presidents of nine new quorums of 70. 63 divided by 9 is 7. So that's the division on how he created nine new presidencies for quorums of the 70. What he did by this means was he took away 63 of the members of the original quorum of the 70. So now that quorum could not come anywhere near to having a majority present, which was necessary in order for them to make any kind of a decision. He completely stripped them of all their power and authority. Now, this part has to be emphasized. Why did Brigham Young do this? We have to look behind this and recognize the fact that Brigham Young would not have done this unless he saw the Quorum of the Seventy as a competitor. And the reason he saw the Quorum of the Seventy as a competitor is because he understood Section 107 as meaning what people back then thought it meant, 
which is that these forms are equal in power and authority one with another. He saw the revelation as saying what it means, and because of that, he felt he needed to get rid of the Quorum of the Seventy and denude it of its membership. Now, Brigham Young had to deal with the competition from the Stake High Council in Zion. Remember, Section 107 says that they are also equal in power and authority to the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. And not only that, Brigham Young knows that the Stake High Council has authority in the Stakes of Zion. He does not. He's going to have to find a way to grab control over the Stake High Council. And this is what he does. On October 8th, 1844, Brigham Young ordained more than 400 men to the office of 70 on that single day. Now remember, he's just created these nine subordinate quorums of 70 by creating their presidencies out of the original quorum of 70. Now he's going to fill up those quorums. How is he going to do it? Well, basically, he's going to take all the priesthood holders he can that live in the Nauvoo stake, and he's going to call them as 70 to fill up these additional quorums of 70 he has created. Why is he going to do this? So he can strip virtually all priesthood holders out of Nauvoo Stake and diminish the power of the Stake High Council. Again, the details are, on October 8, 1844, Brigham Young ordained more than 400 men to the office of 70. This included all deacons, teachers, and priests that existed in the Nauvoo Stake. It also included every elder under the age of 35. The 70 had suddenly become the most numerous office in the church, accounting for about 80% of Nauvoo's males who held priesthood office. So suddenly, on October 8, 1844, 80% of Nauvoo's males suddenly become 70s, and they are in subordinate quorums of 70. The reason for this was the ambiguity of succession that Brigham Young was trying to overcome. This mass ordination of Nauvoo's males to the office of 70 removed them from the jurisdiction of the Stake High Council. The Stake High Council had authority over elders and also the other Aaronic priesthood offices. So when Brigham Young took 400 of them and ordained them to the office of the 70, he took them out from under the jurisdiction of the Stake High Council and was stripping the Stake High Council of his priesthood membership. Believe it or not, by the time of the exodus from Nauvoo, and that was early in 1846, guess how many quorums of 70 Brigham Young had filled up? The answer is 35. In less than a year and a half, Brigham Young had filled up 35 quorums of 70. This accounted for most of the males who received the endowment in the Nauvoo Temple and transferred nearly 2,500 men out of the jurisdiction of the Stake High Council. This is how Brigham Young overwhelmed, by sheer numbers, the revealed equality of authority which section 107 says the High Council at Nauvoo shared with the Quorum of Twelve Apostles. Now, in addition to this, Brigham Young used another administrative technique to remove most high priests from the jurisdiction of the High Council. Remember, he's gotten rid of most of the elders, the deacons, the teachers, and the priests. Now he's going to get rid of most of the high priests from the High Council. 
Here's how he does it. On the same day, he depopulated the quorums of the erotic priesthood and the elders through the mass ordination of 70s, Brigham Young selected 85 of Nauvoo's high priests to do what? To go abroad in all the congressional districts of the United States to preside over the branches of the church. He made them branch presidents. He took 85 of the high priests and made them branch presidents, and why did he do that? Who has authority in the mission field where there are not stakes organized? If you remember that the answer is the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, you're correct. So this was another way that Brigham Young took priesthood officers out of the stake and put them under his jurisdiction. In addition to those 85 high priests, three months later, Brigham Young called another 50 high priests as missionaries, also outside the jurisdiction of the High Council and under the jurisdiction of the Quorum of the Twelve. In this way, Brigham Young completely circumvented the Nauvoo High Council, which only three years before had been given the revealed designation in D&C 124-131 as, quote, the cornerstone of Zion. Well, what happened to William Marks, the president of the state? Here's what happened to William Marks. First, William Marks was released by Brigham as the Nauvoo state president. Then Brigham Young tried to have him excommunicated, but the high council would not go for it. On December 7th, 1844, Brigham Young accused William Marks of apostasy. Some things never change, do they? His tactic was to accuse William Marks of apostasy because he refused to sign a statement repudiating Sidney Rigdon's claims. And those were Sidney Rigdon's claims that he should be the guardian of the church and not the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. William Marks barely preserved his membership in the church, and he did so by signing a statement on December 9th that condemned Sidney Rigdon and acknowledged the authority of the Quorum of the Twelve. So he kissed the Quorum of the Twelve's ring, and he was allowed to stay a member of the church. The apostles published his statement, but never bothered to take any further action against him. For most Mormons, that was really not necessary. One Mormon even regarded the humiliating release of Marx as stake president as the equivalent of excommunication. Quote, President Marx has been cut off, and Uncle John Smith is put in his place. Unquote. That's from the Nauvoo High Council Minutes. December 7th, 1844. So really, he's pretty much out of the way. But that wasn't quite good enough for Brigham Young. William Marks ended up leaving Nauvoo in the latter part of February, 1845. Things were made very hot by Brigham Young for any dissenters. And by dissenters, I mean Mormons who did not support fully the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles as the leaders of the church. Remember, there had just been a huge succession crisis. Not everybody voted for Brigham Young and the Apostles. Many voted for other people. There was Sidney Rigdon, there was William Strang, and there were several others to boot. So, now that the majority voted for Brigham Young and the Apostles, what to do with the people who would not get in line with Brigham Young and the Apostles? And believe me, if you had voted against Brigham Young and the Apostles back in August, it really didn't make that much difference what you said. You were going to be under suspicion that you still did not support Brigham Young and the Apostles. As I say, things were made very hot for any dissenters, and things were made hot by various means, including the activities 
of a certain group of men called the Whittling and Whistling Brigade. Many of us in the church have heard of this Whistling and Whittling Brigade. However, in church art and church stories, this is typically represented as a bunch of young boys who wander around the streets of Nauvoo, and they have pocket knives out, and they whittle on sticks, and while they whittle, they whistle. The idea being that if they see a stranger in Nauvoo, or someone who looks like they mean harm, then they are supposed to follow them and whittle and whistle, not only to annoy them, but also to notify others that there's a problem going on so that more boys will show up, and eventually this person who's in town, this stranger who means no good, will get fed up and he'll leave town just because it's so annoying and bothersome that all these boys are whittling and whistling. That, as I say, is the church presentation of what the whittling and whistling brigade was. The reality was something completely different. The reality was much more threatening. The reality was that these were not young boys, but in fact, they were young men and adults. Not only are they not little boys, they're also not whittling with pocket knives. They're whittling with bowie knives. They were armed with knives from 10 to 14 inches long. And what would happen is a dozen young men and adults would press close to a dissenter or a suspicious non-Mormon, and their incessant whittling with those large knives was enough to strike terror to the hearts of the victims, and they would get out of town as quick as their legs would carry them. Now, you can understand there's quite a difference between a bunch of kids with pocket knives whittling and grown men with bowie knives whittling and whistling and getting very close to you. One would be an annoyance. The other would be an implicit death threat. And that is how a number of dissenters were gotten rid of out of Nauvoo because they were no longer welcome in town. And Brigham Young made sure that they knew they were not welcome in town so that they would leave as soon as possible. One witness in Nauvoo saw a dissenter to Brigham Young going out of town whittled by about 20 men with long bowie knives, kicking him down and pushing him in the mud for three quarters of a mile. As to William Marks, specifically the humiliated and released former state president of Nauvoo, the hostile environment in the city and his place in the church now was enough to induce him to leave town voluntarily. In other words, William Mark spared himself the repressive tactics which the Twelve and their supporters were using against suspected dissenters. Brigham Young himself wryly observed that, quote, Brother William Marks had gone without being whittled out. This was the verb that was used for people who were run out of town by the Whittling and Whistling Brigade, without being whittled out. Now we come to the sad and tragic tale of Samuel Smith. You will remember that Samuel Smith was Joseph Smith's brother. Pretty much the only thing we hear about Samuel Smith in church is that he was the first missionary in the LDS church. He was the one who took 
a bunch of newly printed copies of the Book of Mormon, put them in his knapsack, and traveled throughout the countryside, handing them out to different people and different families, and sometimes we hear about the impact that that missionary work had on members in the church and the new members that that missionary effort by Samuel Smith brought in. What we don't hear in church about Samuel Smith is what happened to him after Joseph Smith died. And there's probably good reason for that. Samuel Smith was in Nauvoo, July 10th, 1844. His brothers, Hiram and Joseph, had just been killed on June 27, 1844, 13 days before. But on July 10th, Samuel Smith shows up, and he has a remarkable claim to make. Remember we talked about all the people who came forward saying they had appointments by Joseph Smith to be the president of the church, and how according to the Doctrine and Covenants, a specific and personal appointment by Joseph Smith to be the next president seems to be required? in order to qualify for that office of president, well, Samuel Smith had such a claim. Samuel Smith claimed he had an appointment by his brother Joseph Smith, and that appointment was to become president of the church if Joseph and Hiram Smith both died. Now, that may sound a little bit convenient from this point of view, considering the fact that Joseph and Hiram Smith had both died, but remember, Joseph was a prophet, seer, and revelator, so presumably his followers would believe that Joseph Smith could predict such an outcome. We find this fact in the diary of William Clayton for July 12, 1844, and in his July 12, 1844 entry, he talks about the meeting that he had with Samuel Smith two days before on July 10th, 1844. Also present at this meeting was Willard Richards, W.W. Phelps, and John Smith. Now, Willard Richards was a member of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. He was also a cousin of Brigham Young. And Willard Richards wanted to put the brakes on Samuel Smith's claim that he should now be president due to this appointment from Joseph Smith. And Willard Richards wanted to put the brakes on it until at least August, because the other apostles were out in different parts of the country. They'd been sent there to stump for Joseph Smith's candidacy for president, and they had to take time to get back to Nauvoo. That's why it took till August for all the apostles to get back in Nauvoo. Willard Richards wanted to delay Samuel Smith's claim until August. There was enough talk about Samuel Smith's succession claim that the newspaper in Springfield, Illinois, reported, quote, a son of Joe Smith, apparently Joe Smith Sr., a son of Joe Smith Sr., it is said, had received the revelation that he was to be the successor of the prophet. So apparently, this news was getting bandied about to the point where the newspaper in Springfield, Illinois, even reported on it. But... After Samuel Smith made this claim to church leaders on July 10th, but before the apostles all returned to Nauvoo in August, Samuel Smith died. And it is the circumstances of his death that are of interest. Samuel became violently ill and died on July 30th, 1844. Now this seemed highly coincidental and perhaps suspicious to a number of people that Samuel Smith should come into town claim 
that he's the next successor to Joseph Smith by direct appointment, and then shortly after making that claim, Samuel becomes violently ill and dies, 20 days after making that claim. John M. Bernheisel, who was a physician and also a member of the Council of Fifty, told William Smith that his brother Samuel had somehow been poisoned by anti-Mormons. So John Bernheisel may have thought it was poisoning, but he attributed it to anti-Mormons. Other people, however, thought it was poisoning, but not anti-Mormons who did it, but rather the most true and faithful Mormons, at least the most true and faithful Mormons to Brigham Young and the Apostles. William Smith learned from Samuel's widow that Hosea Stout had acted as his brother's nurse while he was sick and given him white powder, quote-unquote, for medicine every day until Samuel Smith died. Now, as I said, Samuel became ill within days of the discussion of his succession right, and by July 24th, which was 14 days later, was already very sick. He would die six days after that on July 30th. William Smith eventually concluded that Apostle Willard Richards, remember Willard Richards was the one who wanted to delay the discussion of Samuel Smith's appointment until all the apostles got back, including his cousin Brigham Young, William Smith eventually concluded that Apostle Willard Richards asked Hosea Stout to murder Samuel Smith. The motive was to prevent Samuel from becoming church president before the full quorum of the Twelve arrived in Nauvoo. William Smith had some basis for this belief. First, Hosea Stout was a Missouri Danite and a senior officer in the Nauvoo police. Additionally, you will remember that William Clayton was a scribe at the July 10, 1844 meeting at which Samuel Smith claimed he had the right of succession from Joseph Smith. Well, later on, William Clayton believed that Hosea Stout was out to murder him. This is an amazing story. This is three years later. It's 1847. You'll remember that it was in 1847 the first company of saints headed west from Winter's Quarters. Well, before that happened, William Clayton went to Brigham Young and asked him for a special favor. William Clayton asked Brigham Young if William Clayton could be in the first company of saints to go west. The reason why he asked him this is reflected in William Clayton's own journal. It was because William Clayton claimed that Hosea Stout, once again, there's Hosea Stout, William Clayton claimed that Hosea Stout had threatened to murder him as soon as the apostles left. So it appears William Clayton, at least, regarded Hosea Stout as capable of murder. And William Clayton, in his diary, did not record any attempt by Brigham Young to dispute this assessment. In other words, Brigham Young didn't try and argue with him and say, no, Hosea Stout's not trying to murder you. Instead, Brigham Young granted William Clayton's request to go west with the first company of saints. So this appears to be the type of person that Hosea Stout was. Was he capable of murder? 
Well, he was certainly capable of threatening William Clayton with murder in 1847. And yet there seems to be more evidence along this line. Samuel's daughter also believed her father was murdered. What she wrote was this. My father was undoubtedly poisoned. She also wrote that her uncle, whose name was Arthur Milliken, was poisoned at the same time, and she notes that the same doctors were treating my father, that's Samuel Smith, the same doctors were treating my father and Uncle Arthur at the same time. So you've got the same doctors treating them, they both have these same symptoms, they both get violently ill. Then she adds this, Uncle Arthur discontinued the medicine. You know, the medicine that was supposed to be making them get better? Uncle Arthur discontinued the medicine without letting them know that he was doing so. Father continued taking it until the last dose. And according to Samuel's daughter, Samuel Smith spit it out and said he was poisoned. But it was too late. He died. In what would be the modern-day equivalent of a death certificate, Nauvoo's sexton recorded that Samuel Smith died of bilious fever. Now, bilious fever did cause the death of people from time to time, and in fact, bilious fever caused the death of two children that summer, the summer of 1844, but no other Adults. So Samuel Smith is on record as being the only adult to die of bilious fever in the summer of 1844. This troubling allegation that Samuel Smith was poisoned because of his claim that Joseph Smith had appointed him to be the next president cannot be ignored, but also it cannot be verified. Nevertheless, William Clayton's diary confirms the efforts of Willard Richards to avoid the appointment of a successor before his first cousin, Brigham Young, arrived in town. And it will be recalled that Willard Richards was put into the reorganized first presidency as a counselor to Brigham Young in December of 1847. Turning back to Hosea Stout's own diary, Hosea Stout describes several occasions when Brigham Young and other apostles seriously discussed having Hosea Stout rid ourselves of various church members considered dangerous to the church and the apostles. Stout referred to this as, quote, cut him off behind the ears, according to the law of God in such cases, unquote. Many years later, Hosea Stout would be tried for attempted murder by the Salt Lake Municipal High Court. In that proceeding, Hosea Stout protested that, quote, it has been my duty to hunt out the rotten spots in the kingdom. He added that he had tried not to handle a man's case until it was right. Evidence does not exist to prove conclusively whether the prophet's brother Samuel Smith was such a case that Stout handled. So, although we cannot say with certainty that Samuel Smith was murdered, we can say that members of his family believe that he was murdered, that the allegation of Hosea Stout murdering him is not inconsistent with Hosea Stout's known character, and the circumstances surrounding Samuel Smith's death are suspicious at best. This is going to conclude part two 
of the podcast Apostolic Coup d'Etat, wherein we have set forth the evidence of how it is that Brigham Young and the Twelve Apostles, in a breathtaking power grab, assumed absolute and complete control of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. First, Brigham Young got rid of all the competition for leadership of the Twelve. He got rid of the first quorum of seventy. He got rid of the state high council. He got rid of the state president. He excommunicated Sidney Rigdon, and he made the office of church patriarch a mere figurehead. Brigham Young thereafter reconstituted the first presidency with three apostles in it and took over control of the church. George Q. Cannon was a later apostle in the church. He was a counselor to Brigham Young at the time of his death in 1877. And George Q. Cannon made a statement shortly after Brigham Young's death, which is of interest here and which we will use to conclude this podcast. He may have been alluding to Brigham Young's autocratic usurpation of power when George Q. Cannon recorded in his journal this after Brigham Young's death, quote, Some of my brethren, as I have learned since the death of President Brigham Young, did have feelings concerning his course. They did not approve of it and felt oppressed, and yet they dared not exhibit their feelings to him. He ruled with so strong and stiff a hand, and they felt that it would be of no use. In a few words, the feeling seems to be that he transcended the bounds of the authority which he legitimately held. And George Q. Cannon concludes his journal entry by saying, I have been greatly surprised to find so much dissatisfaction in such quarters. So everything that this podcast has been talking about, the way that Brigham Young transcended the bounds of his authority in order to do a coup d'etat on the church, that feeling was held by other leaders of the church at the time of President Brigham Young. Only they dared not say it to him because they were scared of him. That's how much they didn't want to cross him. That's how much they just said, we'll let it slide. But after he died, they started talking to each other, as will happen when a person dies. And George Q. Cannon, though he was surprised to find so much dissatisfaction in such quarters, nevertheless made a notation of it in his journal entry so that we can have it today. That's about all for tonight. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air.